Hi, thank you for tuning in to the Finding Harmony podcast with me, your host, Harmony Slater. Hi, I'm so happy that you're here listening to the podcast today. I'm Harmony, and we have a wonderful guest for you who's written a beautiful book that I just cannot recommend enough. It's called The Goddess Solution, Practical Wisdom for Everyday Life, and my friend is Lisa Marie Rankin. Um, Many of you always are asking me what are good books about mythology or the different uh, goddesses or deities, and this would be one that I could recommend as it's beautifully written from a personal perspective. Um, and has a lot of different practices, affirmations, um, ideas for you to integrate uh, the energies and forces of these goddesses into your daily experience. And also, I would love for you to join me if you're interested in introducing the energy of the goddess into your daily experience into a workshop that I am providing on June 6th. It's a Sunday and it's through Om Stars. It's called The Secrets of Yoga, The Marriage of Shiva and Shakti. And so this workshop will incorporate both the philosophy, some mythology and practice. We're going to look at the metaphorical language used within these myths or within the tradition that comes from India to describe the masculine and the feminine principles and a very real process of awakening that happens within our mind and our body and how we can embody and embrace this goddess energy and the power of combining the opposite forces and creating union within ourselves to bring about the true experience of yoga. So this class, we're going to practice some breathing techniques, some pranayama, as well as some chanting and meditation, and a few asanas to help uh, feel that energy and power as well. I really hope that you will join me. It's open to everyone, whether you're a member of Om Stars or not. And you can find all of the information on how to register in the show notes and also uh, on my Instagram page. There's a link in my bio and I would love to uh, have you join me and explore this goddess energy, this shakti, this kundalini within yourself through these different practices and learn how to incorporate more of the sacred feminine in your life. And if you are very interested in the sacred feminine, you are absolutely going to love this podcast where we talk about not only Indian goddesses and deities, but also uh, goddesses from Greco-Roman tradition, uh, Egyptian mythology, and also Christian mythology as well. And I cannot recommend this book enough. And Lisa Rankin also has a course on goddesses as well, and you can find all the information for that in the show notes also. So without further ado, I will let you listen to this beautiful interview and I hope you love it. Hi, welcome to the Finding Harmony podcast. I'm here with Russell Case. Thank you very much for having me. And we are joined today by a close friend of mine, Lisa Marie Rankin. Hi, Lisa. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you, Herman Russell, for having me. Oh, it's such a pleasure. You were named after Lisa Marie Presley, as I understand. I actually was, believe it or not. No! Really? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) 
I totally coincidental, if not. But yes, no, I think I think it was definitely inspired by that, if not oh. so named from it. Oh, I totally made that up. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I've Wow, that's incredible. Okay. Mm. And you're joining us today from just outside of Boston. Yes, Lexington, Massachusetts. Mm. And you're a mother of two. Mm-hmm. I have uh, a 14-year-old daughter and a 12-year-old son. So you're kind of in in the thick of it, starting the, <laughs> starting the thick of it, maybe. Yeah, starting to get into that like teenage years of um, where there's really nothing that you can do right or you're a little bit of an embarrassment. I have to drop the kids a little bit further away from their track practice than makes sense, but... (laughs) (laughs) Oh, goodness. Bless bless the parents of teenagers, right? (laughs) Lisa, um, if I could give a little introduction for you for for our listeners... Um, this comes from your book, and it's it's um, why we wanted to bring you on the show today. It says here, several years ago, Lisa Marie Rankin decided to follow the path of the goddess. She left her job in the corporate world to pursue her passion for writing and teaching. As an advocate for women's health, happiness, and spirit, she teaches women to reconnect to their bodies, prioritize pleasure, and rely on their inner wisdom so they can live like a goddess. And you're going to talk about your book, The Goddess Solution, Practical Wisdom for Everyday Life. Well, thank you. What a great introduction. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's a beautiful book. I mean, it's just, it's so gorgeous. I wonder, how did the whole thing come to be? I, I, as I was looking through it and reading it, I just thought it was, it was an incredible resource. It's, it's like a, it's like a life story that is, is, you know, seeded throughout the book, but it's also like a, an encyclopedia for, for, you know, how to connect to different energies. Yes. Yeah. It actually, it was very serendipitous the way it started. So about two years ago, I was in, I was still in the corporate world two years ago, or at least I was just getting ready to leave. So a little bit over two years ago, I was pretty disenchanted and I've always been interested in spirituality, but I just decided I had this idea that I'm going to write a blog about goddesses. And it was kind of interesting because until then I hadn't really spent that much time thinking about goddesses, but I was looking for a way I had been divorced for a couple of years and I was just looking for a way to reframe and make sense of the situations in my life. So I started a blog, and I think the first goddess I had written about was Kali and my divorce, and the second one was Lakshmi and really the divorce process of you know splitting assets. And I had mm. this blog on Medium, and it was within a Medium publication. So I kept writing these essays, and you know they were getting pretty good, pretty good feedback, and it was something I really enjoyed doing. And then one day I got an email, and it was from an editor from HarperCollins, and the subject line was HarperCollins Calling. And, you know, shortly thereafter, the book started to come into fruition. You know, I wrote the proposal, worked with the editor, and created the book. So it was interesting because it happened pretty quickly, and a lot of people are surprised. They're like, you just started writing a blog, and an editor contacted you. And But that's what happened. It was one of those serendipitous things. And I like to think, too, it's like when we start to – follow our passions and do the things that we want to do, regardless of whether they seem a little out there or not, things start to fall into place. Yeah, that, that's incredible. It, it is. Did you have like a massive following on your blog? 
No, not really, because it was the first time I had ever put anything out in the world. Wow. <laughs> That's so incredible. <laughs> because I mean, normally they, what they what a publisher wants to see is that you have an audience that you, that comes with you for the book. Yes, I, I didn't. I mean, I'm straight. I still have probably a smaller platform than many many authors, and you know, I've started to build it more and more the last two years. But really, initially, there was nothing like so. The Kali and Lakshmi were really the first pieces of writing that I have ever put out into the world. That's that's, that's so amazing. It's that's such a like you say such an incredible indication of just like stepping into your dharma and into your life's path and purpose and just having everything like all the doors like swing open for you. Yeah, it really was interesting. And I remember even like telling my boyfriend at the time, like, I'm going to start writing about goddesses and I'm going to create this goddess yoga class too, where, you know, we kind of, and my boyfriend is like very, very practical. He's very supportive, but you know, he's a very practical. And like, I probably could have told him that I was going to start breeding unicorns, but he was just like, <laughs> <laughs> like that's a great idea, honey. You know? <laughs> we should, we should find, we should source unicorns for that. <laughs> breed them. Let's do that first. One step at a time. Well, one thing that um, a lot of, you know, students that I have and people that um, enjoy following, you know, my Instagram account or following my, my classes as well, because I write a lot about the different yoga poses and the, um, sages and, you know, the Indian myths and, and also goddesses as well and gods and different deities. And they really love the stories of the asanas and the poses and, um, you know, the sort of rich heritage that comes from India. And I also have like a bit of a passion and love for this mythology and these stories and um, and the goddess energy and the goddess power. And so I think that's what really attracted us together um, was I saw that you were writing this book and you had this idea for this course, this goddess, um, you know, how to develop and and nurture your inner goddess and awaken the that goddess power in you and um, and I think I had reached out to you and we just connected and ended up, you know, in, in a mastermind group and chatting with some other, other yoga people and yoga teachers. But, um, when I saw, you know, that you also had this interest and you had written this book or at, at that time you were still in the process of writing it actually, um, I was just like, oh my gosh, we're kindred spirits. <laughs> I know it, it is. It's really interesting. Yeah, I was like, "Oh my gosh, she's writing the book that I want to write." Oh, it's true, and it's published actually. Yeah, and it's published. So now I can just, you know, refer everyone to your book. <laughs> well, I don't think there's any shortage of things that we can write about with these deities as well, or like how to apply them to our life. So I think yeah. there's more books in the future for sure. Can, can you talk at all about? It must have been an extraordinary struggle. I mean, you're you're single, uh, a single mom like my my mom's a single mom. You're you've got two kids. You're negotiating life with a co-parent, and now you you, you I'm I'm sure you have your your own business as well. And then you're writing a book, and it seems like it's just so much to carry at that time. Like, what is that experience like? Yeah, I, I do. Get, 
up very early. I always have gotten up very early since I've had children, whether it was to get to yoga or to meditate, but just to feel that I've had a couple hours in the day to myself. And I found as I was writing the book, I was naturally getting up even earlier. So generally, I'd get up at around 5.30. I was getting up at 4.30 just to have really that quiet, silent time to write the book. So I think that that was a big part of it. And I got had a good portion of it written while before COVID. So while they were still in school. So that helped as well too. I'm also fortunate that I do live next to my parents. So that helped with dinners or if I can't get somewhere. So I I, I do feel like I have a lot of support as well. Mm -hmm. That's so helpful. Parents are very, very nice. Grandparents (laughs) are very nice to have around. (laughs) That's actually kind of an irony because we we couldn't start the podcast on time because you were negotiating time between your mom and your kid. That's true. To make sure they could get together. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, actually my mom today, I was like, well, I'm doing a podcast. Can you take them to track? So, you know, I mean, it's helpful to have that support. I don't, you know, I think it would, I'm sure it would have been a different story if they weren't closer. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's that's a, it's it's just such a a boon actually to have your parents close by to help out when you're a mom with you know two kids by yourself. Do do you remember um that book that came out Lean In by the the, the lady from Facebook? I f- I forget her name off the top of my head. Um Yes, I do. It wasn't that um I really should know that. It's like the her name starts with an S. I'm just drawing a blank. Like, like Sharon all I can, Sharon Salzberg. Yeah. I was thinking yeah. like Susan Sontag. Uh, yeah, I was thinking something. Cheryl Cheryl Sandberg. Oh yeah. Thanks, Harmony. Um I was thinking about that book because when I was in San Francisco, she was talking about, you know, women being able to do all the things that they want to do and des- and deserving to have those things, whether it's a career and being a mom, um, having a marriage, uh, you know, being a, a great friend, uh, being sexual and passionate. You can do all these things, lean into it and do it. And then her husband died after the book was made. And I, I don't know if you guys had heard that story, but then she came out and said, actually, um, you know, it's actually harder than I thought. <laughs> it's You yeah, can't I actually... I came out saying it was harder than she had thought. Yeah, because it's... It, I was thinking about, you know, my mom growing up, my mom doing all these things. She wrote a book. She managed a career. She had two kids. And it was a mess. You know, her <laughs> life was really a fucking mess. And I, I wonder that if you could talk about this, like how, how can women, you know, be super productive, but also feel, you know, this goddess energy and feel, you know, feel sexual, feel sexy. How can you do these things at the same time? How can you right. be this that's at the same time? Good, that's a good question. And I think, um, Sharon, Sol- what did we say? Her name was Susan Sandberg. Cheryl, yeah, Cheryl Sandberg. <laughs> yeah. I actually think I have her book on my Audible too, so I should know it. Um, I think it's very challenging for women because I think we're told that, that we can have it all. We can have the career, the sexy marriage, the children, the hobbies and everything. But 
And we can, but we need to pick what time when we're going to have them all. We can't really have them all at the same time. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really hard. And I think, you know, I talk a lot about this in the book is that there's like no shortage of expectations placed on women now that it's like, oh, well, you can do everything. You can have everything. But, you know, at the end of the day, there's only 24 hours in a day and there might be things that we want, but I think it's really prioritizing. And I talk about this with the goddess Lilith, who's really the embodiment of independence and feminine power. Or sometimes we do things because we think that we should do them. It's like, okay, well, I can have a successful career. I can have the three kids. I can have this. So we start to do this, but it's really kind of taking a step back from all of the things that we can or expected to do and really identifying what it is that we want to do and making sure we prioritize that. And so like you mentioned with your mom, she was doing so much and, you know, that things were kind of a mess. And I think sometimes it's okay for things to be kind of a mess if you're doing things that you want. Like I definitely don't have the neatest, most organized house in the world. And I probably won't for a little while. <laughs> There's other things that I choose to prioritize over that. Like it's a little embarrassing sometimes. I'm like, I got to get these things organized, but I don't want to spend the hours doing the housework when it, I could be writing or I could be working or creating a course or just spending time with the children. So I think it's really choosing choosing where you want to put your focus and then giving yourself the grace when you aren't able to do some of the other things that maybe you want to do, but you can't get to it right now. Well, it's so interesting. That's the the first chapter in your book is is on masculine and feminine energy, and it, it reminded me that you know my mom was also had to take on the a dad role, and sometimes that can be you know a little unpleasant to be a disciplinarian and also the one that cuddles a child and have to be kind of you know maybe do both of these things and in the the whole spectrum of your your entire life with your child. Can you talk more about how how we can be masculine and feminine? Sure. Yeah. So first we'll just like explain. So masculine and feminine energy. So that's really the different energetics that we possess. So it doesn't necessarily mean which gender you identify with or your sexual preferences. It's like we all have a combination of masculine and feminine energy. And it really is on a spectrum. And generally we think of masculine energy and that's like the structure, it can be more linear, it's more organized, where the feminine energy is more creative, it's more receptive, it's more flowing. And we tend to have a combination of those. And I think, as you were saying, I think like your mom took on a lot of masculine energy. And I mm -hmm. think many women actually do today, because that's really the energy that's needed if you're in the corporate world, or even if you're an entrepreneur, or like in our school educational system, it's very linear, you know, you study, you take an exam, you get to the next level, or whether you're working, Working. It's like you do your job a certain way, you meet your target goals, you get a promotion. It's all very linear. Whereas feminine, it's a little bit like it's less of a ladder and it's more of a jungle gym and there's a more creative flow. And really what I had wanted to do with this book too is help women can consider that. Maybe take a step back, be able to receive because it's hard because I think we have so much masculine energy because that's what we taught. That's really the dom dominant energy in our culture, but it's also, it's, it's limiting as well too, you know, it's when it's very linear. So I think we can take a broader approach and kind of embrace a little bit more of a creativity where it's not so much the goal at the end, but it's more of the journey. And it's like, are you, are you enjoying yourself? Are you evolving? And are you growing? Not necessarily where are you going to be in two weeks or next year? Mm, that's so, that's lovely. 
And I love also with along with this like masculine and feminine, this balancing of these two sort of like hard and soft or, you know, the yin yang kind of energies, um, you know, how through your exploration of, of the different goddesses throughout the book, not just um, it's not just Indian goddesses, it's all you know, Greco-Roman goddesses and African goddesses. African goddesses. And I think even um, the Virgin Mary is in here. So a few Christian goddesses. Yep. I have Mary Magdalene. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and just exploring like these different archetypes of femininity um, and this goddess energy. And some of them are very powerful and, and have that, you know, destructive force or that very masculine yang type energy as well. Mm -hmm. and, like learning how to call upon them, um, you know, as an archetype or as a, uh, a figure to evoke, to give you courage or strength or maybe um, more creativity or, uh, more pleasure or beauty or different things is it's a it's such a lovely um, idea and and very rich in that it's it's reaching into all these different traditions and looking at the feminine throughout um, different cultures. Right, and that's really what I love about exploring these myth and archetypes because they give us a framework for how to live. And even though you know some of them are thousands of years old, you know as humans, our mo we haven't changed that much. You know, we want to feel our life is meaningful. We want to find love. We want our family to be safe. And these myths give us a sort of framework of how we can how we can frame different situations or different the energetics that we'd want to call into a different situation as well. And I really, I love the goddess archetypes because I think that it's a combination. It reminds us that there is a softness, but there's also the strength as well. And there's that duality. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It, it reminded me that, that there's often a... Um, uh, a, a saying in the Ashtanga community that that the women in our community tend to be uh, very um, what's the, what would the right way to say it? Uh, uh, I, I don't want to say masculine, but like they tend to be very fierce. <laughs> and the men and to get into these postures, you kind of have to be aggressively submissive. <laughs> and so the, so the men are quite you know, really <laughs> trying to get as relaxed as possible, and and yeah. then. Their girlfriends end up doing everything for them. Yeah, Shelley Washington, she always says, this practice turns the women into men and the men into women. <laughs> oh, that, that's interesting. Well, I think that's actually, though, it's important to kind of take a look at because I think in relationships as well, you know, there needs to be that polarity for there to be the attraction. Like, I definitely felt that in my marriage, I had taken on more masculine energy that I was comfortable with. And I think that's mm -hmm. when we start to feel this sense of like uneasiness, desire starts to wane. And we just get mm -hmm. the sense of like, this, there's this unwe when we start to take more, more on or less on of an energy that's natural to us. Yeah. Yeah. I totally can relate to that. I wonder if, if you could, you could set that up for us. You were, I read in your book that, that at one point you were, you were 33 you had led a very prescriptive life and you had a well-paying corporate job in two kids and a graduate degree. And then what happened? What was that, that ennui that you described? Well, it, yeah, it's interesting. When I say prescriptive, I mean, when I look back at my life, it really does seem like I kind of followed a playbook, you know, it's sort of like got married at 29, you know, had my first child before I was 31. And then the second child at 33 had the corporate job. And it just seemed like everything that worked 
sort of taught as a culture is what, you know, what we should be doing. It seems like is what I had followed. And then sort of in my mid thirties, so maybe 33 or maybe even a little bit later, it was almost like I just started to get this feeling that like something was a little bit off. And it's interesting. It always comes to mind that talking head song, like, you know, this is not my beautiful house. This, this is like, not like, my, who is this beautiful wife? Yes, like, well, how did I get here? And it's like, I'm trying to remember. And like, and it's like, did I consciously choose all of this? Or, you know, and if so, why? Like, you know, and it's like, yeah. it's almost like a feeling of kind of waking up and like, okay, I want to start living more intentionally. And I remember during that time, so it was probably maybe a little bit later than 33, where I felt like my marriage was really suffering. And for a while, I didn't think that much of it. I was just like, well, this is probably just midlife. You know, maybe nobody's marriage is that great, you know, in their 30s. And this is just part of life. And I kind of kept on with that, thinking like, okay, I guess, you know, some sense of um, resignation, maybe. And, you know, just looking forward to going out with my girlfriends and having a couple of glasses of wine. And we'd kind of talk about our problems in the sense of like commiseration, but really we were just masking them. And mm-hmm. I think eventually I just started to be like, you know, this just does not feel right. And I think that was really the call to like starting to learn about goddesses and trying to embrace my own goddess energy as well, too, thinking like this isn't this isn't what I want. Hmm. It's it's really interesting. And I wanted I'm, I'm Maybe this isn't a fair question, but I wanted to kind of pose it because uh, growing up, um, uh, I'd been sent to Lutheran schools uh, for for uh, for really bad reasons. But uh, I've been <laughs> bullied, and they thought they you know being in a Lutheran school would be better. And then I was being bullied in the Lutheran school by the teachers instead. So, at any way, at any rate. Um, one of the things that you heard a lot in in that community was that you know that nature and women and children all need to be controlled in a good Christian home, and that's the the patriarch that that's their role is to make sure that everyone is controlled um, and uh, proper, I suppose. And I I wanted to ask you this question of whether or not you felt that women are are naturally wild and uh, you know in 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 their in their natural state or are they naturally acquiescent and and they maybe take on a pre- prescriptive path you know quite easily and, and I'm I'm just wondering like if even if that's a fair question to ask or is it just too too uh, too broad to describe any people that one way um I think Fear. It's probably broad to describe all women because I think we're all probably on a spectrum. But I think I think there's some some things that we can take a look at. Like when you asked, are they more acquiescent? I believe, and I think that there's plenty of people who disagree with me that I think women are naturally probably more agreeable. I mean, we have wombs, we give birth. We're we're biologically designed to be nurturing our young. You know, that's how the species has continued to evolve. So I think there is going to be a strong sense of nurture, a strong sense of agreeability with women. And I don't think there's anything wrong about with that. You know, I think that's a superpower. We create life and we usher them into the world. We create these one, you know, not that the men don't help as well too, but you know, mm-hmm. a lot of that is 
is from women and it's just something that is easy for us to do. But I also think that we are a wild and creative force as well. And I think the problem is when we go too far in any one direction. And I think that's really the balance. It's, you know, honoring our ability to nurture, but also honoring our inner life, our inner self. Like, what is it that we desire? What is it that we want? What do we find meaningful? And I think it's easy to be kind of a pendulum that swings both ways. And I've definitely found in my life, you know, it's like even in like my 20s, I could have everything perfect with like this great job and then be like, I'm out of here. I'm moving to Martha's Vineyard for the summer to be a bartender. And, you know, you kind of go back and forth. Perfect to like, I don't like this. I'm going to blow it up and I'm going to be wild for a little bit. You know? But that sounds like a really good time. Yeah. <laughs> um, in your, in your, speaking of which, in your, in your, uh, the first goddess that you present, as you mentioned before, is Lilith. And she's, it's so interesting. And I wasn't even really aware of her providence as being Adam's first girlfriend. Um, yeah, isn't that interesting? I didn't really realize that at all. <laughs> and you use her as an example of like, well, when I need to feel unconventional, if I'm feeling um, too, too binary, I want to feel more unified. I want to, um, maybe I'll call on Lilith's energy as a way of, of, breaking out is is that a, is that fair to characterize it that way yes i think lily can inspire that sense of individuality sense of empowerment so she's really the one that i talk about when i'm talking about like living a conventional life, like sometimes we just feel that we fall into these roles, you know, whether it's like daughter, wife, mother, but really going above that and figuring out how you want to live your life, what's important to you. So it might be taking, you know, coloring outside the lines or just going in a different direction than maybe your family or your partner want you to go in, but doing things for you and not necessarily for others. So that's really the energy I see of Lilith. Like, you know, I mean, I'm sure she would have had a very nice life in the Garden of Eden, but <laughs> the relationship with her and Adam, you know, wasn't going. So she chose like the more offbeaten path and it wasn't the easier path either. It probably would have been quote unquote easier, you know, whatever that means, mm -hmm. just to stay there and be more complacent. But she chose, she chose a different path. And I think that's where we find ourselves. That's how we grow. And that's how we evolve. Not that we need to go down the dark road, you know, if it's not safe and make these scary decisions, but we, we can listen to our instincts and be led to do what we're being called to do. You you mentioned that as well that that Lilith was um was someone who wanted to have an equal relationship with Adam that he was uncomfortable with you know he wanted to be on on top in love play uh, she wanted you know she wanted her turn on top which I <laughs> you know I I just I thought that was amazing because that's not something that's going on in, in our house <laughs> I, I mean speaking of like aggressively submissive you know I've I think in the gay community, we refer to harmony as like a power bottom. Like, <laughs> <laughs> do you ever do you ever do that? Do you ever do you ever find yourself making love in like an aggressively angry way? Do you <laughs> um, let's see, aggressively angry. I don't know. Well, my partner does often say when I'm angry, he's like, "Don't let me. Why don't you go work that out? Let's go." Because <laughs> <laughs> sometimes I'm like, "Wow, she's really working out some issues here," and I'm just along for the ride. I think it's my it's my inner Lilith yeah, coming think, out. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. Good. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, okay, all right. Um, do you do you think that 
that Lilith or um, the divine feminine was that was that something? Do you think that was celebrated in in your own childhood in your own in your own home? Was that what was that like? Not really. No. Well, it was interesting. I mean, my home, I mean, my mom was a very strong woman. So my father was around, but he was kind of like an absentee dad. They're actually not together anymore. When I referred to my folks next door, that's actually my stepfather. And no one really seemed to have a great relationship with my father, but my mom did basically all. She worked full time. She took care of me. So she was a very strong woman. We didn't have a very spiritual house. And I feel like sharing of emotions. Like I, I think accessing the divine feminine is really getting in touch with your emotions and honoring them, whatever that may be, you know, whether it's sadness, anxiety, fear. And I don't feel like we did a lot of that. You know, I think a lot of it was like, oh, don't worry about it. Or that's not that bad. It was more of like kind of pushing things a little bit like under the rug as opposed. So I don't feel like, I feel like I had a good model in my mom as like women can be strong and competent and take care of things. So I think that that was good. There also wasn't that ease of the divine feminine, like the receptivity, the honoring of the emotions mm. in more of like that flowing sense. Were, were you, were you all Catholic? No, we were Protestant, but we were really very, very unreligious. I actually did go to a Catholic high school, mm-hmm. but it just, we really didn't practice anything. We never went to church we celebrated Christmas and Easter, but that was really more about the dinner and the tree. So it just, <laughs> right. very, like, I, but I've always been very spiritual. You know, I've always been interested in Buddhism. Well, I shouldn't say always, but really starting probably in high school and then more so in college, interested in Buddhism. I would be listening to Marian Williamson's lecture, like A Course in Miracles or Eckhart Tolle. So, you know, kind of a collection of spiritual teachers and frameworks, you know, I've been somewhat engulfed in and you can probably notice that in the book as well too, because I refer to a lot of different traditions. Um, But yes, growing up there really wasn't one. Yeah. And there's also beautiful quotes from like many different sort of spiritual teachers and, you know, different resources as well throughout. And it's so funny. It, we really did kind of live these very similar paths, you and I. It's so bizarre. <laughs> um, how did you come to start practicing yoga then? You became attracted to Buddhism and was like doing a lot of these, reading a lot of these books, you know, about spirituality and, you know, being in the present moment, meditation, things like this. But when did yoga kind of enter your life as a practice? Yeah, I think, as you mentioned, I think it was starting to read about Buddhism, learning more about meditation, which first first got me interested in yoga. And then I would say maybe in my mid-20s, I started taking yoga classes just at the gym. And then I started taking, we had a Baron Baptiste here in Boston. So I started, you know, taking it there. And it was like a very strong power flow. And just have always just really just loved the practice, just the way that it made me feel, how it brought back into my body. Although I do remember when I first started like taking yoga, I kind of missed the whole point that you were supposed to be in the present moment. I remember like going to class, like (laughs) thinking like, I'm really going to think about this issue at work while I'm in yoga for the next 90 minutes. And then eventually learned that no, it's like (laughs) you can just focus on your body and breath. And that felt a lot better, but you know, but I was just really drawn to the practice. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean, sometimes that is helpful if you have sort of an issue or a problem and you're, you're kind of doing something physical with your body and you're breathing and it can kind of, you have those moments of revelation sort of come up and, and the practice can be a tool that way to create, you know, 
these openings, these creative openings within ourselves. Definitely. And I have noticed it really does help with anxiety a lot as well, too, especially I've always I've been drawn to some of the more vigorous practices, especially when I first started. Now I tend to not do it quite as vigorous, but I found that it really helped with like just anxiety or angst, you know, just to be able to kind of work that out in a powerful practice and just feeling a lot clearer and just a lot more optimistic, I would even say after. That's that's actually really uh, interesting or apropos. Um, your second goddess, Morrigan, is am I pronouncing her name correctly? Morrigan. I think. Yeah, I, I mean, I say Morrigan, but okay. I actually I would like to say that I am not very good at pronouncing things. I know a lot of words, but I'm, yeah. I'm not sure if I, how great I am at pronouncing. Things. Well, let's. You have I a little uh, superflex over the A, so let's call it Morrigan. And so yeah. Morrigan, a, a goddess to befriend difficult emotions. And I wonder if you could tell us more about her, because you have this passage. I've also learned that I can direct Morrigan's energy through physical activities. I can attend a strenuous yoga class, go for a challenging hike, and yes, even have wild sex, as as you mentioned before, Lisa Marie. <laughs> and... Um, she becomes, but you also she becomes a kind of metaphor for you for uh, PMS, as as you said. And I think this whole this whole notion is, I would think, be really very um, would would resonate with our Ashtanga community. Yes, I love this goddess, and I think this is really interesting. And for most of the goddesses, like we talk about them as having like energetics that we want to tap into, like whether it's Aphrodite and passion or Saraswati creativity or. But with Morrigan, it's interesting. It's less of an energetic and it's almost more of a reminder. So I feel like she really represents our difficult emotions or our shadow side, or maybe it's like those smaller, younger parts that come out when we're triggered. And I love the myth because they say she really instilled fear in people because nobody ever knew she was a shapeshifter, how or when she would appear next. And she caused fear in other, in battles by the opposing side. She'd be whispering things in their air. So it's really, and you can kind of think of our emotions like that. Like, I don't know if you've ever had that day where everything seems to be going well. And then somebody says something to you and it's like, you turn into this current, like, boiling cauldron of rage. (laughs) (laughs) Like, well, where did that come from? And it's really kind of getting to understand, like, okay, and I love it. One of my teachers always says, like, when we're triggered, you know, put a hand to your heart. And it's like, thank you, teacher. It's like showing areas that we still need to heal. Mm. So for me, Morrigan's kind of a reminder that we're made up of all sorts of things, not just the nice, agreeable parts, but we can get angry, we can get jealous, we can get lusty, and there's all parts that we won't don't want to disown or hide, but we want to understand so we're not surprised by them. Because that's what people, people were surprised by Morgan. She instilled fear and panic. And I think our emotions can do that to us sometimes as well, too. So for her, she's really a representation, I think, of our difficult emotions. And I use that example of PMS, because I would find too that I, everything would be fine, you know, for a good portion of the month. And then just, you know, that week before, it's just like everybody was just like anything that I could have, like maybe it was like kind of annoying, but it didn't bother me that much. It really 
bothered me like that week before. And it kind of like everything starts to bubble forth. Mm. And I also think that's because we don't pay attention to our emotions throughout the month and we try to push things under the rug and like, oh, he didn't mean it that way or it's not that bad. But then it's almost like our defenses start to come down a little bit more during that time. So it's less about turning crazy and I think almost just being more aware of the things that actually were troubling you. Oh, yeah. Like the unconscious coming to the surface. Yes. Yeah. Wow. That's, you know, my mom told me as a a kid, she said, you know, Russell, when I, with, with my, with my period, I've got a, a week (laughs) before my period where I don't feel good. My period doesn't feel good. And then my week after the, my period, I don't feel, I don't feel quite right either. So I've really got about four days where I feel good, Russell. Do you understand? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I said yes, 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 mommy. Um, I wonder for, for those of us who are who are struggling, and I don't know if I'm supposed to use this book or not as a boy. But for those of us who are struggling, he and we enjoyed wanted, it a lot. I did. For, <laughs> might not be relevant, like the PMS part, but I think the other areas. I I have my difficult my difficult periods. Um, he has M M M S. Is that what it's called? Do they call? Uh, I think that's. Um, isn't that MMA fighting? Is that what no. you call it? Oh, um, so if I if I want to <clears throat> if I want to access uh, the spirit of Morgan, or if I want to access the spirit of Lilith, how would I how would I use this book to do that? What is the what's the what would be the process for me of Lilith? If if I want to get more unconventionality in my life through oh. Lilith, or if I want to get more um, uh, physical embodiment in my life through, through difficult emotions with Morgan. How would I, how would I uh, use this book to to access that? I think really starting to understand the goddess. So the way that I had divided the book is like you know I start with the energy of the goddess. Like so, how it might fail when you're feeling her presence or her energetics and then reading the myth and really kind of contemplating the myth. So spending time thinking about it, thinking about how those energetics show up in your life. And then for Lilith, you know, she kind of was out on her own. I think spending time alone would be a really important part of being like connecting to Lilith, being in nature. So being by yourself, because she's really individuality and independence. And I think, you know, a lot of times we're not, maybe we're afraid to be by ourselves or we just don't even have that ability due to family or work. But I think it's kind of connecting to Lilith, having some time in solitude, you know, even if it's just a little time in the morning where you can be alone with your thoughts and really connect into your desires. And with Morrigan, again, I, I don't know, I think that's less of an energetic, but it's more of an awareness of these difficult emotions and getting curious about what they're trying to tell us, you know, so when anger comes up, so what is, what is it you're really angry about? And just getting curious and instead of trying to hide it, maybe trying to channel it or redirect it, whether it's through some sort of physical activity like hiking or yes, wild sex, but really kind of just understanding the emotions and where better ways that you might want to release them. I did see that, that, that each chapter or each goddess has a set of exercises um, associated with her and a way of accessing. And uh, so like, as you said, taking a, a walk in the uh, and being alone with Lilith, or or going to a strenuous yoga class with Morrigan. Um, I was interested to I was interested in this notion of of an altar as well, and I wonder about um, 
you know, having an idol or or an image uh, of the goddess, and and how you felt about having a, a particular, you know, a, um, a visual. I think that's a great idea, and I can't actually remember. I, I don't know if I have information on altars in this book. I probably should remember, but I know that I had thought about it at one point, but mm-hmm. I was trying to just make it accessible as, as possible. But I think having some sort of visualization of one of the goddesses, whether it's an image or whether it's something that you think the goddess would appreciate receiving, you know, so for example, right now I'm doing a challenge with the goddess Persephone and it's like, we could have flowers, we could have a pomegranate, you know, there could be signs of growth, signs of decay, because she's the goddess of spring and queen of the underworld. But I think that's a great way. And I think that's a way that to kind of acknowledge the energetics that you're trying to bring in, also just having it available. So you can start to, you know, petition the goddess as well for helping guidance. It's really, it's really sad when Persephone took a, a bite out of the pomegranate. That was really bad for her. It was tricky. It was bad. Yeah. Now she has to spend the whole winter in hell. <laughs> and winter's long <laughs> up here. What we're learning is that it really wasn't that bad. And there's actually some <laughs> stories that would say that she wanted to stay with Hades. So if you think about it, spring and summer, she's really eclipsed by her mother, Demeter. She's the maiden. She's really more known as the daughter, where she turns into a sovereign queen. She's the queen of the underworld. She gets to decide who stays and who goes. And by a lot of accounts, actually, her and Hades have a fairly happy union, it seems. So it's interesting. It's like, I actually look at Persephone as like, that's the opportunity to evolve, use our challenges, maybe things that we didn't want in life, where we evolve from that naive maiden to that more powerful sovereign queen oh i love that that's so insightful like those that that hell that you experience in your life right using that to for your own liberation in a way for your own growth that allows you to uh take power over you know that that particular trauma or that particular event um and and move you into a space where where you're transcending it and and becoming, you know, your own queen or your own powerful figure in your life. Yeah, exactly. I have this. I'm having this image right now of of um, Winona Ryder in uh, at, with Edward Scissorhands, <laughs> kind of, or like, or or Winona Ryder in Heather's as as when Christian Slater blows up and she lights a cigarette. Like she's really owning. <laughs> Her destructive energy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you, you, I really just—it's a phenomenal achievement what you did in this book. I mean, you've created an encyclopedia's worth of research. I don't. I can't imagine the 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 work that you did assigning specific goddesses to specific emotions. What was that research like for you? And what did you find yourself doing and looking for? It's interesting. I I feel like overall, I feel like the book came together fairly easily. And it's interesting, like with the, I mentioned that there's a whole bunch of different spiritual traditions kind of contained in this book, as well as positive psychology and other methods. And I think part of it is all of those years in corporate America commuting to work, I listened to lectures and books and podcasts. So then when I started to write this book, it's like I had this outlet to put all of this information. And I found it it was a really useful way for me to make sense of situations in my life and just understanding the women in my life, things that I thought that they would like to hear as well too, or things I should say that they would need to hear. Um, Really, I just let it every come. I remember as I was writing it, I write everything when I write an essay or when I was writing this book, I write everything in a 
longhand first. Like I don't go straight to the computer because I feel like it's just a, it's just a more creative way for me to write. And I remember always writing at the top of each page, like right now and think later. And I really just let a lot of these ideas come out. So I just mm-hmm. kind of focused on getting everything out there. And then the editing was more of a process to kind of call and to refine. Mm. Oh, that's a beautiful tip. I'm always looking for writing tips. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> right I, now, think later. Like, yeah, right now, think later. And and also just like writing longhand as well, like on a, in a notebook and then transferring it over after into um, the computer. That's been a really um, complicated kind of transition for me because I always used to write in a notebooks longhand form all the time. And and now everything's on computer. And so I was trying to write on the computer, but I can totally understand how um, you know, so it just doesn't feel like as there's something missing a little bit there sometimes. Yeah, it is interesting. And I'm not sure exactly what it is either, but I just feel there's like, there's a more creative flow with like pen to paper to some extent. Mm-hmm. It's like Ooh, kinesthetic, maybe, especially if you're like oh, a, a body be. person, you know, it's like that kinesthetic involvement of your body. Yeah. And just like seeing the words starting to come together. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. And you can like scratch things out and like circle and draw arrows. Yes, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's that's helpful. That's interesting. I'm gonna I'm gonna try that. You're inspiring me to like get on it and do something interesting with my life. Yeah. (laughs) Other good writing tip that I had recently heard as well, too, which I think it's kind of it makes a lot of sense is like writing and editing are two different tasks. And I think sometimes we try to edit while we're writing, but then we're stifling, we're kind of stopping that flow and the creativity. So, you know, have a time to write, to get all of the thoughts, the ideas down, and then a different time to edit and to kind of call and refine, but not don't necessarily do them at the same time. Yeah. And I think that's another thing with the computer. It's hard not to write and edit at the same time, especially because you see like, Right, all the spelling mistakes and all the grammar mistakes get highlighted for you. Right? Yeah, then you're just focusing on that as opposed to kind of the content or the message. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I remember um, Jack Kerouac wrote his entire "On the Road" on a, to- a, a sheet of toilet paper, <laughs> and so he just kept unrolling the toilet paper to write on it. Yeah. And oh, then, I didn't realize that. And that's how he wrote the book. And then it was it was basically he he refused he I think he even refused to edit the book. He just sent it over to his editor and like here you go. Yeah. Make, so make sense out of this. Can you imagine some some <laughs> young female copy editor getting a like a toilet paper roll in a box? You're here. Having to uh, type. This, is, this <laughs> is for you now. Okay, there you go. It's like okay. That's terrible. <laughs> I know that really is. I don't even know how you write on toilet paper. It seems like it would tear immediately. I would think maybe in the fifties it was a harder stuff. You know, maybe like maybe. everything was made like of, in India. They have that toilet paper that's almost like um, everything was paper towel. Everything was built to last in the fifties. You know? It's true, even toilet paper. <laughs> <laughs> I um, I wanted to ask you um about natural goddesses and this phrase that you you brought up and I'm I'm sorry if I'm transitioning poorly here but um I I was thinking of this book that I had I had read a, a while ago by the Sanskrit scholar uh Wendy Doniger and it's called Splitting the Difference and the book is set up as a kind of cross comparative history of myths which was I thought similar to your goddess book and the thing that I think she was trying to get across is that, look, these myths 
are prevalent in every society in human civilization. And so this is something that binds all of us. The other thing is that these myths are all written by men. And so what she was trying to, to demonstrate is that men are more alike across different cultures than they are even to women. Within their own culture. Within their own culture. And it, it, was, it was really, I think, I think it was super interesting to think about that, that um, the needs and differences between men and women are, are profound, and yet there's so much that links us across the world. Um, one thing I wanted, with that in, in mind, one thing I wanted to ask you about was this notion that women are naturally goddesses at birth. And you even described yourself as a, as a toddler as being a natural goddess, doing whatever she wanted, saying whatever she wanted, uh, peeing wherever she wanted to pee. <laughs> and then she grew up and became, um, and you know, was disciplined into a particular uh, framework. And I wonder if you, could, if you could talk to us more about that, about how to access being a natural goddess and how also women are naturally goddesses. Sure, right. And that book sounds fascinating. I'm actually going to put it on my list. I'd love to read it. So thank you for mentioning it because I'm going to take a look at that. Yeah. So what I really meant by the natural goddesses, and this is, I think, like when I talk to different women in the course, this is what it really comes back to is starting to come back to yourself. So in the book, I talk about, you know, you when I was younger, you cry when you want, you know, you're just trying to learn or evolve. You don't fear getting angry. You know, you're kind of just in touch with your emotions. And as you grow, you start to get these different affects, whether it's people pleasing or agreeability. And sometimes we need to do this to get along in the world or to get the care that we need from our caregiver. But I think becoming a goddess is starting to look within yourself. And I know in the book I talk a lot about too, there's been times in my life where it's like always looking outside for validation, like whether it's the validation of men or, you know, my appearance, do I need to look a certain way? Do I need to make this amount of money? So it's all of these different things like, okay, like, well, I'll be successful. I'll know that I'm worthy once I have this. Kind of forgetting about all of those external things, like which maybe they're nice to have, but we're only going to feel worthy and validated if we can feel that internally. Like if we have that sense of self-esteem, self-love. And to me, that's really what it means to be a natural goddess is that like, I don't need to look outside myself. I don't need like that man over there to tell me that I'm worthy or I don't need this job or this certain code, but it's like, I have this inherent sense of value and worthiness. Mm, yeah. Mm. Getting back in touch with your own center and your own, um, self really. Yes. Yes. It's really coming back to yourself. And it's in some of my groups, we've been talking a lot about boundaries lately. And it's interesting because I feel like boundaries aren't really taught. And I actually, I really hadn't started thinking about them to like maybe like the last couple of years or so, but really understanding like, how do you want to be treated and how do you communicate that to others? Because I think for a good portion of my life, it was always kind of assuming people meant well or not wanting to say anything because you don't want to rock the boat. So again, it's like that balance between like, okay, how, you know, you, it's nothing wrong with being agreeable, but how do you make sure you still feel good about yourself at the end of the day as well too? Yeah, that's so, that's so important. And I, I like, you know, in the uh, tantric traditions, the, 
energy, that that psychosomatic spiritual energy in both men and women is uh, in the feminine uh, noun. So it's the kundalini, right? Which is the serpent energy. And that's the really is the goddess or sometimes it's called Shakti again in, in the feminine. So this, this deeply feminine, wild, natural, um, energy resides. Yeah. Procreative resides in both men and women and is, and we need to tap into it for our own awakening. And in fact, Shakti, uh, taps, uh, Shiva's energy she, <laughs> she takes it from him and this is why the masculine energy especially in india is considered uh soft and lazy well she gives because shiva energy that's, i thought that she took it no. from him and that's why she was so energetic no, she I thought Shakti, empowers shiva uh, leaves act. leaves shiva a kind of uh, a wreck no that's you oh <laughs> <laughs> it was dormant without Shakti. Yeah, she was oh, like, powers. Like, uh, he was like the pure consciousness, and she was the creative energy. Yeah. Right. Well, I'm just trying to understand what's going on in my house. So, um, spe- speaking so of which, meant to evolve, so maybe that works for you. You know, like <laughs> there's there's another there's another goddess that I was thinking of that reminded me of of our own circumstances. Um, someone who. I think um, we could really, we could really, would really be useful for us right now. And that was uh, your goddess chapter on uh, Yamaya. Oh, yes. A goddess for co-parenting, which is a a phenomenal chapter title. Um, (laughs) I I understand that Yamaya is a Yorube goddess from Nigeria, Mm -hmm. and she is the matriarchal head of the universe. Can you talk about her and how does she come to embody, how does the matriarchal head of the of the universe come to embody the, the goddess of co-parenting for you? Sure. So Yamaya was a very protective mother. She was very stern. And she's sort of, you can imagine, she was often depicted as a mermaid, but you can imagine her having like this like pastel of deities in her wake. And she was really looking out for their best interests. Like, so she was the matriarchal head. And really what I wanted to come across in this chapter, because as I mentioned, you know, I've gone through a divorce and, but, you know, even if you don't go through a divorce, you're always co-parenting, right? You're right, still co-parenting sure. with others to really remember to keep the children's best interest in mind. Mm-hmm. And, you know, had I not gone through a divorce, I might be like, of course, you're going to keep the children's best interest in mind. Like that's obvious, <laughs> but it gets hard, you know, like, but it does, it gets challenging when there's relationship issues, when there's ego issues and there starts to be more at play. So it's really like understanding, like we're not just the children's parents, but we're also their spiritual teachers. And we're also demonstrating to them how to behave in conflict as well, too. And it's kind of trying to take that wider stance, which can be very hard. I think relationships bring up a lot of issues. Like you talk about Morrigan. It's like, those are those difficult emotions, those triggers. Mm. And it's really kind of trying to get above that and remembering like, okay, I am ushering in this new this new generation of deities how do i want them to behave what can i teach them how can they learn from me Mm. Oh. I, I love that you called the children the deities because mm. I think that that's so true, right? If we, I mean, as yoga practitioners, we're trying to see God in all things around us and understand everything as sacred. And I mean, if it, you can't start with your children, I don't know where you're going to start. 
Yes. And I think that's just such a great example because really they are, you know, I mean, they come into this world completely open, completely creative, and they're watching us. They're watching to see how we interact with others, to see how we live our life. So we can talk all we want about what we think that they should do, but they're really watching what it is that we do. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. And are we like, um, modeling uh little like deities or or um you know the light beings or are we modeling asuras or the the dark (laughs) beings right like those or rush rishakshas the rishakshas yeah the uh the really dark (laughs) demon beings you know (laughs) rakshakas rakshakas (laughs) you you actually um lisa marie you you had a wonderful passage in in this particular goddess uh chapter um, where you were incredibly honest and vulnerable, you described a horrific fight that you had with your ex. I think it was it was about um, some uh, financial um, income that you that uh, he wasn't paying child support, and you were you had gotten some money, and you were supposed to split it with him, which was outrageous. And you had a massive fight at Christmas with the kids present. Um, Harmony and I have been sharing Christmas with her ex for years now, which is awkward. Um, So we really resonated with the story. I just wonder if you could, if you could tell the story for our listeners. Sure. I will. So this was probably either the second or third Christmas, like since we had separated and we were trying to, you know, still have some sense of family normalcy and the children were still young as well too. So we were going to my ex's for dinner and he was making like a festive Christmas dinner. And we were also bringing, we had no pair. We were bringing her as well. And everything was going on, you know, well enough. Like my ex and I, we're not terribly agreeable, but we can get along at different times, <laughs> you know, but, but we were getting along fine that night. And then as I was helping him clean up and do the dishes, he started to ask me about these shares. They're kind of like options or a bonus that I get that I was required to split with him and just started to ask about them. And something about that too, I mean, it was Christmas Eve night. I was already kind of resentful that I had to give him these chairs. (laughs) And, you know, it just started this huge fight. And the interesting thing, well, I don't know if it was interesting and I can't remember what I actually said, but I've always... I used to pride myself. I could say really cutting things that could really upset people. I could go like kind of like right for the jugular. And I think that's what I had did that night as well too. Like you want to start with me? And like, I would just kind of go right back. So it ended up in this huge screaming match (laughs) that I can't even believe I would do that in front of the children and in front of the au pair. So (laughs) it sounds mortifying. (laughs) It really was. And it was just like on Christmas Eve. And it was just one of those things too, where it's just like, that trigger where it's like, you're no longer, you know, in any connection to your higher self or what a better way to resolve it would be. It's just more of like, I'm right. And I'm going to have the last word. Mm -hmm. And then I think your, your kids came to you later and, and didn't they say something like, I don't think you should hang around daddy anymore. Something like that. Yeah. So the next day they stayed with him for Christmas Eve and then he brought them back to the house for Christmas day. And my son was like, I don't ever want you guys in the same room again. I don't want to be in the same room with you. That was terrible. You know, did that. And he was probably only like eight or something. So, you know, really getting reprimanded and I completely agreed with him, you know, and I apologized and it was terrible. And it just, it wasn't, 
you know, sometimes I think it's okay for children to see arguments because they need to see that there can be arguments and things can be resolved. But that was not an example of the constructive argument. That was just yelling, you know, mm-hmm. hurling insults at one another. And it was just, yeah, it was really terrible. And I, I that's, that's amazing that you brought that up because I, I think one of the, one of the difficulties that I had with my ex was being able to manage uh, conflict of any kind. And I, I think she had said at one point, like, well, I never saw it. I never saw my parents have an argument. They always went into another room and had the argument or the, they talked about the conflict there. The end result being that she never learned how adults resolved conflicts rationally either. You know, mm-hmm. she didn't see the fights or, and she also didn't see the resolutions. And I think that's that's incredibly helpful for children to see your parents have a rational discussion, maybe even a passionate discussion on on you know what makes a better choice for the household. But then, but then that's very different from having a fucking screaming match. Is- <laughs> right, and then you're teaching them that this is what happens at screams. And it's interesting. I had something that happened recently that kind of highlights these, how children interpret these events. So it was, um, I was having a a little bit of an argument with my boyfriend, but it wasn't even a particularly big argument. You know Mm -hmm. I mean? It was kind of like, it was a silly argument, but I think I sounded pissed off, but yet he was still kind of being jovial about the whole thing. But my son calls me into the room so he Mm. could hear us. And he was like, he was really upset. He had tears in his eyes. He's like, mom, what are you doing? You know, why are you, why are you saying that? Stop fighting. You know, you guys are going to break up because my children really, really um, love my boyfriend. And I'm like, honey, this isn't really a big deal. You know, like, Mm -hmm. it just isn't like, no one's even really that upset. You know, it was like a kind of a silly argument, Mm -hmm. but he was really upset because I think in his mind, he's seen me and his father fight. Like it just ends up in explosion and then divorce right. you know and then even the next day he's like well i don't understand you know why do you had to say that i don't even really remember i'm like listen i'm like he likes it when i tell him why i'm upset about something i'm like it's good for me to be able to be able to communicate that because actually a lot of times i wouldn't communicate that you know i would kind of just keep it in until yes i'd probably become a burning cauldron of rage but um, but it is because I think that they haven't seen that, so they think they associate any any argument or something with more of an explosive fight and right. the demise of a relationship. We've had exactly that situation with Jetty. With you know, you know, it's like you guys just stop fighting, you know, please, you know, like. When, <laughs> and we were like, we're having what we think is a jovial, passionate fight that to us is a lot of fun. But we we enjoy having passionate arguments that can be confusing for a child. Yeah, and it can be healthy, but it's good. I think once they start seeing it and getting accustomed, though, as well to like, oh, this doesn't mean it's the end of the relationship, or this doesn't mean that you know, yes, something bad is going to happen. They'll get used to it. I think for my kids, you know, they've gone through the divorce, so that's their model. Is that mm-hmm. you know, it could end that way. So I think it's really good now that they see. No, you can have arguments. You don't have to agree with somebody. You can voice your concerns or you know what yeah. you're thinking without having to worry so much that everything's going to come tumbling down. Yes. Yeah. That there's healthy ways to have arguments and still come back together. And it doesn't necessarily mean that things are going to fall apart forever. Right. Yeah. Well, maybe you could tell us again how 
how Yamaya could help us with our co-parenting situation. <laughs> how could we draw on her energy she's, now? She's the mother of the universe, right? Right. She is the mother of the universe. The way that I like to connect with Yamaya is really, it's almost even in like a loving kindness meditation where it's kind of getting still, really bringing the children in mind and getting the focus on them and, you know, off of any of the egoic needs, whether it's to be right or just to get something done that you want. But really spending time in contemplation and understanding like what what is really truly the best thing for the children that will help with their evolution, with their growth, with their happiness and really understanding that. Mm -hmm. I like too this idea that of looking at other adults or, you know, growing children (laughs) and understanding that they are also children or, Mm. you know, acting from that place of a child often. Um, And, and so then you can hold uh, a compassion or like you're saying, a loving kindness. You can, you can see that, that we're all actually kind of still children in many ways. (laughs) Harmony, that's such a good point. I was at this like lovely workshop this summer. It was like a bhakti yoga workshop. And we did a lot of work with like our inner parts and our inner children. We kind of really started to identify them. And that, you know, that came pretty easily to me as far as like identifying the places like the anxious person, the girl that fails to be abandoned. But it's also remembering that others have those little parts too. So it's not just about accepting our own, but also accepting that others have them too and being able to hold that space for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you can do some pretty deep work too, like you just mentioned, where you're accessing those those, you know, maybe somewhat traumatic events, especially like as a child for a child, remembering them and then, and then having cultivating, you know, loving kindness or compassion for that, that inner child or for that child that is you that was then, but is still now. (laughs) And like doing that, that deep work of healing and, and, you know, creating safety and love and, and whatever it is that that child needed at that time and didn't receive, but you can kind of, you know, time is, is also a bit of an illusion. So you can heal those parts now that maybe you couldn't heal then. Yeah. I really think that's part of too, of just reconnecting with that inner goddess and creating that, like getting that presence, that, you know, divine mother presence where it's like, yes, I can care for these inner children now, you know, take them up and hold them, hold space with them without identifying with them or fusing with them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's powerful. Mm -hmm. Well, I just have one word goddess I I wanted to bring up today. And I thought that, that maybe for our listeners, this is maybe the one that was most broadly relevant to all of them. And this is a fantastic chapter. Gaia, a goddess for living through a pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> and I imagine you maybe you wrote this uh, particular chapter during the pandemic, or did you? Was I it, did. Uh, it was probably one of the last thing you know, last chapters I wrote, or getting close to it. So it was probably in like March or April of last year. Yeah. Can you tell us about that? Sure. So what I really liked about bringing up this goddess. Well, one, there was a, there's also the Gaia hypothesis, which I'm not sure if you're familiar with, I can briefly explain it. So this is Please. a hypothesis that was created by James Lovelock. And there was another woman as well involved. I can look for her name and really with the hypothesis and it has its share of critics, but I think it just makes a lot of sense is that we all come together as these living and non-living beings and processes to make this living, breathing planet that we're 
on, which is Gaia. So it's we're all part of something much bigger, which is what a lot of spiritual traditions tell us. Or if we want to look at it on a more micro level, it's how our body works, like our heart, liver, what we eat, how we engage in exercises come together to create the living being that is us. Mm-hmm. So it's really remembering that we're part of this larger force and that we're not just mere individuals on the planet, but we're part of something bigger. So the way I really viewed the pandemic was that it was a, something was recalibrating. So something was clearly off, you know, and it was recalibrating. So really understanding that we're part of this and it's like our thoughts, our energy and everything contributes to this. And that's really the, the Gaia theory. And we can look at Gaia as the goddess is like this earth mother too, that we're contributing to. So we're not separate from her, but really mm. an integral part of her. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's um, like the the Titans. I think are are born from her, and yet they are her at the same time. And it's it's a fantastic way of thinking about the world in a very kind of holistic way. That if you think of you know trees as being separate from you, you're really missing the point. You're missing right. missing the whole picture. Because this and is it can be yeah. hard to kind of. I think you know. I think we live in a very individualistic culture, so mm-hmm. it can be. Hard to think of that because I think a lot of times we think of things as like I or me or this is happening to me. So it's almost like thinking that the pandemic isn't happening to you. You know, it's happening and you are a part of it. You know, Mm. it's like it's also knowing that we have less control over external events, which I think we all know. But it's really being a part of nature and being part of this process as opposed to differentiating yourself from it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's uh, again like kind of a profound way of framing the pandemic, you know, that that the pandemic isn't something that's separate from us or apart from us, but we are the pandemic. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. It's us. Yeah. Yeah, it's us. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I know it's kind of an interesting way of looking at things. And, you know, but it also, I think, and I think we even seen on the level is, you know, as we had to make sure that, you know, we're in mask and we're social distancing and we're being accountable for making sure that we weren't spreading it. But just as a reminder that we are these very, we're accountable. We're part of something. Everything we do, whether it's like our thoughts or our actions are affecting a larger whole. So also like making sense to do the inner work too. So you're a positive force on Gaia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's interesting. Um, Fauci announced today that, you know, Look, the the there's been no negligible flu this year because of our behavior, right? <laughs> and so we didn't have a a, a flu um, a flu period or a flu season because of the things that we did. And mm-hmm. you know, it's 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 that's a, a kind of metaphor of, or an example of how our behavior affects our our entire planet. That there's like right. poor little f- flu uh, viruses out there, like you know, like really needing a home. And we're not, we're not providing at home for them. So this joke isn't going over, is it? <laughs> what okay. did you, we're not providing I'm a home for the viruses? For the va- I'm, si- I'm sad for the flu viruses because it's okay. all connected. We're all connected. Uh, yeah. never mind. I, you're the only one that's sad for them, I think. <laughs> the rest of us are, are happy they're not homing in our bodies. <laughs> Does your son read uh, those Percy Jackson novels at all? He does, yes. Yeah, my son loves it. I even asked him a few questions, like as I was going through, like, you know, like, what was the story of like 
Gaia or what happened with Zeus and you know yeah. so and so and he'd be like no this is what happened mom and yeah yeah mm-hmm. my I read them with my son Jediah too like almost every night because he wants me he's a little bit lazy he likes me to read them to him you know so oh, that's <laughs> yeah. so but I actually enjoy them also because there's like all a whole bunch of mythology that's being sort of rewritten into modern day times and. I like that um, in the book that we're reading right now, there's a big war against Gaia and Gaia is not, um, you know, she's not a benevolent goddess in many ways because she's, she's about sort of keeping things um, for herself, right? She wants herself to be well and herself to do well. And so um, it's a, it's sort of an interesting reframing a little bit like Thanos in the uh, Marvel universe. That's a good idea. Yeah. Who's like, you know, a bad guy, but he's in his mind, he's trying to help. A reduction in population would help. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I think we all think that. I feel Thanos and Gaia have similar. (laughs) It's just leave my mom alone. Right. (laughs) Well, they're dynamic. Yeah, it's interesting because they are, they're not static, you know, one size fits all, but a lot of them, yeah, have these two sides, kind of like this light side and a shadow side. You know, like Aphrodite is all about passion, but she's also pretty jealous and vindictive as well, you know? Yeah, yeah. That's, and I, it's, it's really, it's, it's just beautiful how they're, you know, it's, even though they're archetypes, they're not um, flat, you know, they're, they're very, um, three-dimensional beings and and have many different sides to their personality as well. Yes, just like we do. Yeah, I have I have a question for you. I, I think in in the beginning of your book, you might have mentioned uh, Joseph Campbell. Is that yes? And you maybe that was uh, myths to live by. I mentioned um, the power of myth. I'm, I feel like I may oh, mention the, the power of myth. Right. Okay. Of, um, different areas because. I really love the work how he that he did introducing myth and their importance of their life mm-hmm. and how he also would remind people that you know we're not separated just by geography or culture but like you know these myths are and I think Harmony you mentioned you know or mm-hmm. Russell you mentioned they're this consistent across the world mm-hmm. and it's because we all share this common humanity and it's almost like we have a framework that we can take a look at to remind us of how connected we really are. Because that's what I wanted to ask about. Because it's, in a way, um, even though it's deeply emotional and very much a part of our of our uh, consciousness to experience and live and understand myth, I, I think for me, Joseph Campbell was a kind of, it was like an intellectual exercise in... Um, understanding culture and understanding what people were really doing when they were, um, you know, making a Superman movie or, or making the, the, the Avengers. They're trying to, um, they're, they're creating archetypes that we live through Mm -hmm. with your book. And I'm, this is the question that I have is, is it, do I use it like the power of myth, like a, like Joseph Campbell or um, am I actually, um, is this really the, the religious instinct? And am I actually digging in and creating um, a religion for myself? Hmm, that's an, it's an interesting question. I think ultimately somebody could use the book 
you know, whatever way is calling to them. Mm-hmm. I really would like people to think that the goddess is not necessarily like a deity outside of themselves, but an aspect of their highest self. So mm-hmm. I really see them as, like, as you learn about these myths and goddesses, you can see how they, how they are represented in you in your experiences. And then you have more of these different emotions or energetics, or even like say powers that you can call upon in different situations. Mm-hmm. So to me, it's like opening up more that's available to you. It's like, oh, like I can tap into my creativity. Maybe it's because I'm in a dead end job that I'm feeling uninspired, but starting to take a little bit more accountability for your life and understanding all of the different energetics or different options that are possible to you. I mean, for me, it's more of a spiritual practice, but if somebody wanted to look at it from a more intellectual practice to look at like the different archetypes, they can, but ultimately we're going to be calling in energetics of the goddess, whether we want to say it, you know, via an altar or whether it's practices that we do during the day to call those energetics. Mm-hmm. I like that there's a lot I feel of- like that didn't really answer your question. It really but. does. I think that's really fantastic to think about- that it's this is that this is a way of framing and understanding ourselves, and that we're going to um, use language to um, to uh, use language and practices <laughs> to call on specific energies for ourselves, but in specific situations, and it's I think it's it's really a um, a fantastic resource for 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 people to use and and it's a lovely read as well we learn a lot about you know learn a lot about different cultures throughout the, the world and i i like to the journaling prompts i think that's a really nice aspect as well you know that each with each like um after each goddess there's a way to connect with the goddess and there's you always give these different journaling prompts and so even if you're not really into like you know evoking energy or setting up altars or doing a particularly you know spiritual kind of thing you can just like read the story think about it and then like you know ask yourself like you know am I pursuing a career that lights me up am I spending time with people who contribute to my growth right and you can ask yourself these very introspective insightful questions and and all of a sudden your life starts to change a little bit because you're reflecting on on your own inner experience Right. And that's really, I feel like so much of this practice is it's like self-inquiry. It's getting curious, not just taking everything at face value, but asking yourself those questions. Because sometimes we don't, you know, we get busy with work, with kids, we do things, but really taking the time to get curious mm-hmm. and to live with more intention. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's super powerful in, in making changes and and creating the kind of life that you want. And like we were speaking about at the beginning where you felt like you woke up from your life and and didn't really know if you ever chose any of it. <laughs> Sometimes if we're not taking the time to create those moments of, of insight and introspection, then, then that's what happens, right? Right. Yeah, we just start to go on autopilot till eventually it's like, hmm, where did the time go? <laughs> yeah. What doing? yeah. Now I'm 80. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and uh, we should celebrate that Buffy St. Marie is also 80 uh, just recently. <laughs> just celebrated her birthday. <laughs> Lisa Marie, I want to, I just want to thank you so much for coming on the show. It's such a beautiful and gorgeous book and I hope people get a chance to 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 look through it. And you have a course coming up um, on the goddess that people could also uh, enroll in, and if they want to practice with you and like go through some of these goddesses, is that yeah. yeah? Tell us about the course and how people could find you and 
and practice with you. Sure. So the course goes a little deeper into the book. So it's five weeks and we look at five different goddess energetics. And then there's practices, again, from myth, Ayurveda, and ancient and modern practices really to help cultivate those energetics. So I've gotten great feedback on the course. And I think it's just, um, it's a beautiful way to frame self-care. So I feel like often we think of self-care as, you know, how are we moving our body or what we're eating? But this course really takes you through really all of the different layers. Like we work on the physical body. We talk about our sexual energy, our emotions, like what we were talking about earlier, like caring for those inner children, our relationships with other and our connection to the divine. So it's, um, it's a beautiful program. So if people would like to practice, they can learn more on my website, lisamarierankin.com. Oh, perfect. And when's your, when is the next group starting? The next group is starting in a couple of weeks, actually, probably in like two weeks. So, but then we'll be starting again in September or October. Great. Great. So lots of opportunity. <laughs> Good. Well, fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Ms. Rankin. I really appreciate that. Or Ms. Presley? I don't know. <laughs> Lisa, Lisa Marie. That is really an archetype of, of the goddess in our, you know, the, the consort of, she is, of the king. Yes. The consort of the king. <laughs> Thanks, Lisa. It was so wonderful to chat with you and have you on today. Thank you. It was lovely chatting with both of you as well. Thanks for listening to this episode of Finding Harmony. With me, your host, Harmony Slater. You can find out more information on my website, harmonyslater.com. And I look forward to connecting with you again soon. Standing in eternity's shadow Watching the breaking waves There's a heart Oh,